Good morning. Good morning. All right. Alex, I'm, I'm sitting down, so I'm going to let you lower the camera for those online. But I sat down last week, and it was such a pleasant experience, I decided to try it again. Good morning, everyone. Is anyone willing to admit to having a broken cell phone screen or screen protector? Oh, I saw so, Shelly in the back. Two hands. Yes. Yeah. Uh, but you still carry your cell phone, don't you? Yeah, because broken things can still be useful. It's, it's true. Same goes for people. Broken people can still be useful. It was December 17th, 1964, and New York City was getting ready because the king was coming. Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. was on his way back from Norway where he received the Nobel Peace Prize for his work uh, fighting against segregation and fighting for the rights of black people across the world. And New York City that day was presenting Dr. King with a medallion of honor. Kind of the whole city came out to see him. There was a ceremony that morning at Civil Hall. That night, 8,000 people gathered together to hear him speak. And when the mayor told the city about who Dr. King was and about the work that he did, he presented him as this icon, this hero, this uh, amazing man doing work that's important not only for the country but for the the whole globe. He's a hero. And yet, the truth is, is that Martin Luther King Jr. is also a profoundly broken person. He's a real guy. And the reason I know is because a few years ago, I had the opportunity to go through a biography of Dr. King called Bearing the Cross. It was written by David Garrow, and it won the Pulitzer Prize in 1987. Um, The author interviewed like 700 different people who knew Dr. King and put together a portrait of a man. See, the author, his goal, he just comes flat out and he states, he says, I didn't want to write a story about Dr. King that put him up so high on a pedestal that everybody else would be looking at him going, yeah, I could never do that. And so he writes the story where you see all Dr. King's character flaws and mistakes and terrible things that he was doing. And you go, oh, if a guy like that, as broken as he is, can make a difference in the world, maybe I can make a difference in the world too because broken people are still useful. And this is good news for us, because if you're here this morning, chances are you know that you are not all that you should be. You know that the, the screen on your metaphorical life cell phone is cracked in several places. Um, and the good news is that there is a good God that uses broken people to do good things. And as a case in point, we're going to go to the scriptures this morning. We're going to read about the life of a guy named David. You may have heard of him. His life is one of the most detailed stories we have in the whole of scripture, and we are introduced to him in 1 Samuel 16. Now, last week we talked about the story that Israel needed a king, and they needed a new priest. And the first king that they got was a guy named Saul, someone who, when push came to shove, cared more about what he thought was good than what God thought was good. He cared more about his own honor and reputation than about God's honor and reputation. And so God in 1 Samuel 15 said, Saul, you're done. You're not my king anymore. So while Saul technically still has the reins to the nation of Israel, he's not the one God wants. 
enter 1 Samuel chapter 16. God sends Samuel to a town called Bethlehem to a man named Jesse to go anoint one of Jesse's sons to be king instead of Saul. And so Samuel goes, and Jesse, he's there, and his whole family has come, and out comes the first son of Jesse. And this guy's amazing. Samuel sees him, and he's like, this is just the guy we need. At which point, God speaks up and says, actually, Samuel, he's not the guy that we need. You're doing what everyone else does. You're looking on the outside, but I look at the heart. And so Eliab is passed on. Well, out comes number two son. Again, he looks great, but he's not the one God chose. And then number three, and then number four, and then numbers five and six and seven. Like I said, Jesse had a big family. And uh, all of a sudden, Samuel's in this awkward situation where all of the seven sons of Jesse have been examined and found wanting and sent to the other side of the room, and there's no one left. And so the prophet Samuel's like, um, Jesse, do you have any more kids? And Jesse is in an awkward spot. He's like, well, well, actually, yeah, I have one more son. He wasn't important enough to invite here. He's out with the sheep. And Samuel says, well, you better go get him. And lo and behold, in comes the youngest, you know, we call him the runt of the litter. Like, he's a good-looking kid, but, I mean, he's just number eight. He, he's not important to anyone except to God. And when he comes in, God says, get up, anoint him. He's the one I want. And so the eighth son of Jesse kneels before his father, his brothers, and the prophet of God, and Samuel anoints David, his name means beloved, to be king over Israel. And from that moment on, the Spirit of God comes upon David. All right, he's a king we've been waiting for. And the first story about King David we run into after he's been anointed is to find out that David can cast out demons. Turns out the son of David is able to cast out demons. Remember that story, especially come Christmas. This will be important. All right, moving on then, we come to our, one of our favorite stories in the entire Bible, it makes it into nearly every children's storybook I've ever encountered, David and Goliath. We know the story. The old enemies of Israel are up to their old tricks again, and out come the Philistine army to attack Israel. And so King Saul, who's a giant among Israelites, and his army line up against the Philistines. Turns out they have a giant of their own. Enter Goliath of Gath. And depending on which manuscript tradition we read. This guy is somewhere between like seven feet tall to like maybe up to 11 feet tall. He's a looming giant and he's built like a tank. He's terrifying. The biblical authors rarely, if ever, tell us what people look like, but they don't hold anything back when it comes to Goliath. Let me tell you about this guy. All right? He's huge. He's tall. He's got a bronze helmet. He has scaly armor. This subtle illusion like Goliath's like a snake. His javelin weighs, you know, his spearhead weighs like 15 pounds. He's got bronze greaves. He has a shield that someone else carries for him. There's actually two men on the field. He has a, a shield bearer whose sole job, I'm told by historians, was to run in front of the champion and keep him from being attacked from long-range weapons. We don't hear any more about this guy in the story, but whatever happens, he failed badly at his job. Okay, so Goliath, he's built like a tank, and all Israel and Saul are quaking in their boots. He is terrifying. And here comes Goliath, and he's got a challenge. He says, hey, guys, you know, rather than all of us fighting all of you and everyone dying, let's, let's do these things like a civilized people. Why don't you send one guy to come fight me? And if he kills me, then we'll all be your slaves. And if I kill him, 
then you all will be our slaves. And, you know, everyone in the back in Israelite camp is like chattering teeth and they're super scared. Enter David. Okay, so David is normally portrayed as this scrawny 12-year-old kid with a slingshot. Um, no, that's not the right picture. Yes, it is still the David and Goliath story, but it's just not quite like that. If you read the story, you find out that before David shows up at the battle line, his father loads him down with like 40 to 45 pounds of goods, and David runs in excess of a half marathon before the sun comes up. All right? He's not a warrior. He has no experience as a soldier, but the guy can hustle it, and he's pretty dang strong. Okay, so David shows up on the scene. He hears the taunts of this Goliath, and as has happened before in the story, God's anointed king when he hears about the snake, gets super angry. And David says, I will take this guy down. Now, King Saul doesn't believe David, and David has to, you know, convince Saul. He says, look, I've been a shepherd, not a soldier, but enemies attack my flock, and when a lion or a bear come and steal my sheep, I've gone after them. I have seized them by their beards and killed them. Don't exactly know what a beard is when it relates to a lion or a bear. Like maybe the lion's mane, but do bears have extra long chin hairs or I'm not sure. Whatever it is, David's like, I have killed a lion, I've killed a bear, and I will kill this wild beast of a Philistine. And so rejecting Saul's armor, David goes out with a shepherd's staff, a slingshot, and five stones from the brook. And when Goliath sees David, he's like, excuse me? Am I a dog that you're going to come out with a stick? And Goliath taunts David and curses him by his gods. And then David looks at this Philistine giant, and he says, oh, Goliath, I am so sorry for you. I mean, yes, you're armed to the teeth. You're coming at me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but you don't, you don't stand a chance because I'm coming to you in the name of Yahweh of hosts, all right, God of armies. It's God's battle name, and the first time we run across it is in Exodus chapter 7 when Yahweh shows up and just tears down the most powerful nation in the world, Egypt, and leads the armies of Israel out, David's like, yeah, Goliath, I've got Yahweh on my side. And so here's the thing. I don't have a will cut off your head somehow, all right? And I'm going to feed the carcasses of this army to the birds of the heaven. And this is going to go down. Why? So that you and the entire world will know that there is a God in Israel. And so that everyone here will understand the battle belongs to Yahweh, and he's going to give you into my hands. All right, it's this awesome army smack talk coming out of David's mouth. And you know the story. The giant and David, they run at each other. David puts one stone in his slingshot, fires it off. We don't have any idea what happened to that shield bearer. But the stone hits Goliath in the forehead. And whether it kills him instantly or just stuns him, Goliath falls to the ground, and then bladeless David runs over, takes the giant's own sword, kills him, and cuts off his head. All right? God's anointed king just crushed the head of the snake. And both armies just start, I mean, they're in shock, and then they start running. The Philistines are running away, and the Israeli army is running after them. All right? It's this huge victory. And then David comes carrying the head of this snaky giant Goliath into King Saul's presence. Now, King Saul's not dumb. And like every, you know, a political mastermind ever, he sees what someone else does and then manages to take credit for it, sort of. I mean, he appoints David commander over his army like this is all his plan. And David becomes captain of his bodyguard, best friends to the king's son, and he marries the king's daughter. So 
I mean, by the end of the day, people are singing the praises of both Saul and David. Imagine it going something like this. Saul has slain his thousands, and David has tens of thousands. At which point Saul's pretty upset because David got more credit than Saul did. Uh, But life is good, and the Israelites won. Except for life isn't good because King Saul has rejected the Lord and been rejected by the Lord. And over the next five chapters, when we assume that David should just climb the social political ladder until stardom, instead what happens is that an evil king becomes jealous and then afraid and then begins to hate David and tries to kill him. And so Saul comes after David with everything he has and David ends up running away from his life. He has to flee out into the wilderness, and here comes Saul with 3,000 soldiers chasing him. It brings us to 1 Samuel chapter 24, and there's this amazing story, because David and his men are hiding, and here comes Saul and the army. And even if you're king of Israel and you have a whole political cabinet to help you accomplish your business, there's certain business that only a king can attend to himself, if you know what I mean. They're on their way, and nature calls, and Saul has to respond. So he's looking around, and he sees a cave. He says, you all wait here, O army. I'm going to go in there, and I'll be right back. Uh, So here comes Saul into a cave, and it just so happens David and all his men are hiding in the back of the cave. (laughs) So in this awkward moment, here comes King Saul. It's like, oh, king's coming. Oh, he's turning around. Like, oh. (laughs) And all David's men are like, dude, this is your chance. Saul's exposed himself like, He's exposed. You should go kill him. This is what God said. He has handed your enemy into your hands. And so in comes David sneaking up to King Saul, who has other things on his mind. And David cuts off a corner of Saul's robe. And then then David has a chance to do what so many people in the biblical story have done, to, to realize that God's blessing is there for the taking. He can reach out and he can take it. But instead, David's heart is convicted. And he realizes, God made Saul king. It is not my place to reach out and take his life. And so for one of the few times it happens in biblical history, David chooses not to seize the blessing on his own terms. And he goes and he keeps his soldiers from doing it too. He shows radical faith in God, even though he is presently persecuted, unjustly rejected, even though he is suffering because of this guy who refuses to take Saul's life. And when Saul has done his kingly duty, and heads out of the cave. David follows after him and says, Saul, why are you chasing me? I had a chance to take your life, and I didn't do it. Why are you after me? And, and Saul is, is stricken. He begins to cry, and he realizes, like, I, I should be dead right now. David, I have done nothing but evil to you, and you're doing good to me? Who are you, David? What kind of, you know, what kind of person's like that? I know you're going to be king one day, and when you do, would you please not kill off my entire family? which is just standard, you know, a standard political move in those day and age. And David makes a promise to not destroy the line of his enemy, and they go on their way. And at this point, you think David should be in the clear, but it's not the case. Saul's repentance doesn't last very long. And two more times in chapters 25 and 26, David again is faced with a test where he could seize vengeance for himself, and he refuses. He needs the help of a really godly, wise woman in chapter chapter 25, which is awesome, but he, he refuses to take matters into his own hands. He displays incredible trust that though he is presently suffering, God will one day vindicate him. And he's right. One day, God would. 
And the story of 1 Samuel comes to a close with Saul, who's been in a downward spiral for a long time, uh, culminating in horrendous sin, being confronted by a man of God. And just as at the beginning of the book of Samuel, you had God's anointed one, the priest and his sons, dying on the same day and the armies of Israel being defeated. So here at the end of 1 Samuel, King Saul and his sons die on the same day and the armies of Israel are defeated by the Philistines. And it's a tragic tale. But, you know, David's the king we've been looking for. So we think, all right, every, the coast is cleared. This is the time. And David should be thrilled that the guy who's made his life something of a living hell is now out of the way. But when, when David hears that Saul has died, he doesn't rejoice. He actually, he mourns the death of his own enemies. And then, unexpectedly, well, and what we expect to happen is now David's going to be king over all Israel. And one tribe, the tribe of Judah, comes to make King David king, I mean David king uh, over Judah, but all of a sudden, this other guy stands up into the story. King Saul's army general, a guy named Abner, all of a sudden finds some son of King Saul that we've never heard of in the story. His name is Ishbosheth. His name means the man of shame. And now there's another political rival for David, who again waits another seven years for God to keep his promises before Ishbosheth is gone and taken care of, and all of Israel comes to anoint David king. So at this point, David is 37 years old. Life has not gone the way he thought it would when, when God made the promise long ago that he'd be king over Israel. But at this point, everything should be swell. And David's first action as a king over all Israel is to go up to the city of the Jebusites to Jerusalem and take it over and make it his capital city. All right, so Jerusalem, Zion, or the city of David, three different names for the same place, just like Portland is PDX, it's Stumptown, it's the city of roses, like we like our city, David liked his city too. And then in chapter 6, David puts on the role of a priest. He dons priestly garb and he attempts twice to bring the ark of God's covenant into the city of David. He wants God to come live with him. And the second time it works, and David dressed like a priest rejoicing before a holy God with all his might makes burnt offerings and peace offerings and blesses the people and then gives them abundant food and sends them all to their homes in peace. David is now acting like a priest king. And early in the book of Samuel, we were told that God was going to establish a new priest and build him a house. And we wonder, is this priest king in Jerusalem the guy? Sure enough. 2 Samuel 7, you guys know the story. David, now he has peace all around. He's sitting in his palace in Jerusalem, and he begins to ponder the fact that I'm living in a palace, and God is living in a tent, and this feels not fair. I think I want to do something for my God. It's like, I'm going to build God a house. And so he tells the prophet, hey, Nathan, this is what I want to do. And Nathan says, yeah, God's with you. Go do it. But that night, something interesting happens. Yahweh comes to the man of God and says, I'm Nathan. You spoke a little bit too soon. You need to carry this message back to David. David, I never asked you to build me a house. In fact, I haven't asked any ruler of my people to build a house. That wasn't something I was asking for. So now here's what you need to tell David. This is 2 Samuel 7, verse 8. This is what Yahweh Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, 
and I appointed you ruler over my people Israel. You are a shepherd of sheep. I've made you a shepherd of men. And I've been with you wherever you have gone. I have cut off all your enemies from before you. David, do you remember how much I've done for you and how little you deserved it? So let me tell you what's about to happen. And then God says, now I'm going to make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. And wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. And I will also give you rest from all your enemies. David, you thought I have been good to you. I'm just getting started. And let me tell you what, it's only going to get better from here. Because Yahweh declares to you that Yahweh himself will establish a house for you. You weren't going to build me a house? No, that's not how this relationship works. I'm going to build you a house, a kingly dynasty. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I'm going to raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He's the one who will build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father. He will be my son. And if he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men, with floggings inflicted by human hands, but my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house, your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. David, I am just getting started. One day, David, someone from your line will come who will rule and reign forever, who will be my son and who will build me a house. You, you read this and you realize that this is just chocked full of all of the words of blessing that God promised to Abraham long ago. This is a, a chapter break in the biblical story where we realize that God's intention to bless the entire world through the family line of Abraham is now going to come through the family line of King David. We are looking for a king to come from David's line who will end up blessing the entire world. And David gets it. Like, what do you do? You wanted to do something for God, and then he shows up and says, no, I was just getting started. I, I kind of felt similar uh, this week or a week and a half ago. I went to a wedding. And, you know, when you go to a wedding, you're supposed to come and bring gifts. That's what you should do at a wedding. And... I am humbled to admit I brought a card and there wasn't even money in it. I just wrote like blessings upon the couple. I'm here. That's, that's what I had. And then what ended up happening was the next day, the father of the bride showed up with bags in hand. He says, we brought you your gifts. I said, excuse me? He says, yeah, we have gifts for you. This, this is a cross-cultural wedding that I went to. It was in a language I couldn't understand. He's like, this is how we do things in our house. You don't give us gifts. We give you gifts. And so he gave me 20 pounds of frozen chicken and cash. I brought a card. And he gave me a wedding gift worthy of a bride and groom back to me. David wanted to build God a house. And God says, no, 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 David. That's not how this relationship works. Let me build you a house. And so David goes and he just sits in the presence of God and just like, who am I, Lord? And who are my people? Like, why would you do this? I don't even know. 
But David says, he says, this is, this is good news for the whole world. This is for all mankind. David understands God is bringing about his creational purposes through David's line now. And he just says, all right, um, I'm going to make this really awkward, scary, courageous prayer. God, would you just do what you said? And would you keep your promises? And it is perhaps the highest pinnacle point in the entire Old Testament, arguably. A priest king reigning in Jerusalem who has just been made a, a unconditional promise by God that your family line will endure for, before me forever and that I will love them always, no matter what they do. They will have consequences over their sin, but my love will never be taken away from them. And we're like, this is some good news. And for the next two chapters, we just get to sit in this little Eden moment for a second as King David continues to conquer his enemies. And then in chapter 9, it's this beautiful picture where David displays to his enemy the kind of love that God has displayed to him. King Saul has a grandson. He's a cripple. His name is Mephibosheth. He's living in the middle of nowhere, like Lodabar. It means like not a pasture, <laughs> not a good place. And just as Hannah saying that Yahweh is a kind of God that takes the needy from the ash heap and makes them sit with the princes of his people, David takes Mephibosheth from the middle of nowhere and brings him into his house to sit at his table and enjoy David's hospitality and protection and blessings for the rest of his life. David is acting like the God he serves. Clearly, he's the king that we've been waiting for until he's not. Welcome to chapter 10. We're going to get to chapter 11 in a second, but it's interesting how the biblical authors tell the story. In the course of time, the king of the Ammonites died, and his son, Hanan, succeeded him as king. And David thought, I will show kindness to Hanan, the son of Nahash. Remember what I said about 1 Samuel, Nahash? It's a proper name, but it means snake. David has a story about dealing with the son of a snake who then is treacherous, and shames David's servants by exposing their nakedness in front of everybody. And a war breaks out. And during this temptation, this test that involves a snake, we get the story in chapter 11. David has sent out his army, and he's at home up to no good. He goes out late at night to his rooftop, and there he sees the rooftop of someone else and a beautiful woman taking a bath. And in the words that Leonard Cohen immortalized, he saw her bathing on the roof, her beauty and the moonlight overthrew him, which, as a side note, is the only detail of the biblical story that Cohen gets right. The rest of the song is cool sounding, but rubbish, but <clears throat> I digress. So David sees Bathsheba. Unfortunately, this is just not, not just any woman. This is the wife of one of his best soldiers. She's the daughter of one of his best soldiers. She's we find out the granddaughter of his most trusted advisor. And David sees her, and he reaches out, and he takes her. And he has an affair with her. He sleeps with her, and she gets pregnant. And now we just fall into the same pattern that we've been in ever since Genesis 1 through 11, all right? There's a sin that results in shame and hiding, that results in consequences and curses, that then spreads out, and then you have siblings fighting and killing siblings, and things go from bad to worse until a catastrophic flood of judgment and violence takes over the land. All right, welcome to the story of David. So David has slept with this woman, wants to cover it up. So he invites her husband back and tries to get him drunk so he'll go home and sleep with his wife, and then we can all pretend like this never happened. But Uriah is more righteous than David. 
And so when David realizes he can't get Uriah to play ball, so to speak, he sends Uriah back to the battle line with his death sentence in a sealed envelope for the army commander. And so Uriah is killed in battle. And the moment that David can, he marries Uriah's widow and pretends like everything is good, but God saw it all, and it was evil in the eyes of God. And so for the third time in the story, a man of God goes to confront an evil anointed one. And Nathan comes to David and says, dude, and David says, I know. And unlike Saul, he doesn't try to hide it. He just says, I have sinned. And then Nathan says, here's the consequences. Yes, you are still loved by God. God has forgiven your sin, but these are the consequences. The child that you just bore is going to die. You killed a woman's husband with the sword of an enemy army. Now the sword will never depart from your house. You slept with a man's wife in private. Now someone's going to sleep with your wives in public, David. Your house, which is a blessing to the entire world, is going to now become something of a dumpster fire of relationships, like some of your guys' Thanksgiving holidays, I'm sure, only much worse. And that's exactly what happens. The very next story, one of David's sons rapes his sister and then is murdered by one of David's other sons. And then that son goes on to throw a coup and tries to overthrow David. And for the second time in his life, David is on the run, only this time he's not innocent. And we don't even like David right now. And David, you know, despite it all, he shows radical faith in God. And he says, if God chooses, he will vindicate me. He'll bring me back. And at the end of David's story, he's still king over Israel. But his son has, multiple, multiple sons have now been killed. And David is heartbroken and wishes that he had died in place of his enemies. And it's just, it's a train wreck. God, you're going to bless the whole world through this family line. Have you seen the kids that David is bringing about? Like, how? And that's kind of the point. And there's this appendix to the book of Samuel, the last six chapters, showing the failure of David and the hope of David. Because David realizes, like, it's not me. I am like this broken, smashed picture of the king you actually need, but I'm not the king. I, too, am looking for the king who is going to come the one that God promised, the one from my family line. Our hope is not in David. Our hope is in God who keeps his promises and brings good out of broken people. And so we're looking forward to the son of David, one who's going to reign and rule forever, one who's going to be a son of God, one who's going to build a house for God, one who is going to yield his life for the sins of God's people. Okay, it doesn't actually say that. But you get a picture of it. The very last story of King David is in 2 Samuel 24, and David and Israel are being judged by God for their sin. And when David sees the consequences coming upon the people of Israel, he cries out to God and he says, let your hand be against me and my family. He says, I've sinned. I, the shepherd, have done wrong. These are but sheep. What have they done? Let your hand fall on me and my family. And my best guess at what's going on is I think David is taking God's promise to the bank, realizing that because God promised, I will, I will bring consequences onto your family, but I will never remove my love for you. I think David realizes his family is the only one with enough credit before God to be able to spare the people from the consequences of their sin. And so David, he's a broken picture. Now, at his best, he shows a man who has incredible reliance upon God that he will keep his promises, all right? He, has, he is enduring suffering unjustly, all right? He is um, 
just joyous and worships with abandon. He shows incredible generosity both to his, well, to his enemies. All right. At his best, he's the kind of king that we're looking for. And then at his worst, he is such a train wreck of a man. And I didn't even mention everything that David gets wrong. And yet David later will be held up as the pinnacle, as the image, the hero that we're looking for. Every subsequent king of Israel and Judah will be held up against David and saying, did you measure up or did you not? Because for all his brokenness, David is still used by God for good. And David's hope is the same as our hope. We are waiting for a king to come. And so David is looking to get ready today in preparation. If you read David's story in the book of Chronicles, this really comes clear. David sets, uh, realizes, I won't build God a house, but that doesn't mean I can't get ready right now. And so he begins to accumulate all the treasure, all the gold, all the jewels, all the timber, all, all the workforce, all the plans. Like, let me get everything ready so that when the king finally arrives, he'll have everything he needs to do the work that God has prepared for him. And I think that's, that's where I'd leave us today that we would get ourselves ready and look forward to the king just like David did and prepare today for his eventual arrival. Kind of like New York City, getting ready to host Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., only we have a better king to anticipate, and his name is Jesus. See, David is a picture of God's anointed one. He is a, a template that Jesus comes to flesh out and fulfill only without failing the way that David failed. For me, a few weeks ago, it was actually really encouraging because I didn't ever put together in my brain that David's story is one of who uh, is the story of someone who was anointed by God and then has to endure an incredible amount of unjust suffering as he awaits ultimate vindication by God. And that was really helpful for me because as I was dealing with some really hard things in life, I just realized, oh, this has always been the story of God's people. And so if life is really terrible today, whatever you're going through, just know this has always been the story of God's people. And our hope is always that God will come and keep his promises and will ultimately vindicate and set right everything that's broken in the world. It doesn't change the present circumstance, but it gives me hope and meaning and purpose in what I was going through. I hope it gives you guys hope, meaning, and purpose. And I just covered like 40 chapters of the biblical story, hopefully, and not too much time. And so of all the different ways that we could respond, I'm going to suggest that we do something together. Now, all of you guys hopefully have a small sheet of paper in front of you. I would suggest that we, like David, celebrate that our king is coming and then prepare for his eventual arrival. So I want us to keep Advent together this year. Now, I know someone, I won't name him, in our church community has an awesome Star Wars Lego Advent calendar. If that's your jam, more power to you, okay? If you're more like the chocolate Advent calendar person, I don't care, more power to you. And if you are the cheap, I don't want to take time or spend money kind of person, then I have it all ready for you right here, okay? It's a countdown. Technically, Advent doesn't start till next Sunday, but we're going to start today. And here's what I want us to do together for the next 29 days. So you're going to take your pen, and like a little kid waiting for Christmas, you're just going to draw a giant X over the day, and then you're going to say, as you're doing it, our king is coming. Let's get ready today in hope of his arrival. So would you guys cross it out and then repeat after me? Our king is coming. 
oh, we got to do that again. Because for you online, that didn't go well. We're going to try this one more time. Our king is coming. Our king is coming. Let us get ready today. Let us get ready today. In hope of his arrival. All right, better. Now, the good thing is, if you're single, it doesn't matter how bad you butcher it, I won't call on you to do it again. But if you live with somebody, do this together. And if your spouse or your kids go, what are you talking about? Then you get to explain it. Our king is coming. What we're saying is that this world is broken, and our lives are broken. And our hope is in that one day God is going to show up, Jesus will come back, and he is going to fix all that is broken in the world. And for over a thousand years, the Christian church every year has celebrated Christmas, a time when we look back to the time when our king did come, and also a time that we look ahead to the fact that our king is yet to come. He is still coming. All right, our hope has not quite yet arrived. And so we're counting down day by day, anticipating the coming of Jesus, waiting perhaps in some really dark circumstances, waiting for God to keep his promises. But then we say, let's get ready today in hope of his arrival, all right? Because waiting isn't something that's passive. Waiting in anticipation of him coming, we have something to do. In the book of Revelation, John says that the church, like a bride, has made herself ready for the coming of the king by adorning herself with good deeds. All right, if Jesus is coming back, we want to be ready, and so we are going to turn away from sin. We are going to love one another. We're going to display acts of generosity, and we're going to clothe the naked, and we're going to feed the hungry, and we're going to live with radical trust that God is going to show up and fix things, and so we don't have to take matters into our own hands, that we can forgive those who hurt us and do us wrong because we have been forgiven by God. We are going to make ourselves ready because the king is coming. And so every day, we're just going to repeat this as we exit out. And because you and I are both prone to forget, I wrote it down for you. Okay, so here's your line. And when we finally get to Christmas, and I don't know your family situation, I don't know your holiday plans, but I hope it's one of the best Christmases you've ever had in your life. And that you sit down surrounded by a community of people who love you. That there are gifts in abundance. That you just have this moment where you realize that you are experiencing a small slice of heaven on earth. And you wonder, how could life possibly get this good? And then you remember the calendar that you finally counted down. And I hope on Christmas Day, we all say together, wait, our king is still to come. And so we can make ourselves ready in hope of his arrival Despite all the good things that God has brought into our life, he's just getting started. We think we don't deserve this. And the answer is, oh, of course we don't. But the nature of our relationship with God is that he only ever has more to give us. And that's some good news. And so I want us to anticipate Jesus together continually, but especially for the next 29 days. All right? Our king is coming. Let's get ready today in hope of his arrival. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the story of David. Thank you that you are the God who uh, can use broken people to accomplish your good ends. Father, if there's hope for a guy like David, then I guess there's hope for people like us and people like me. Because my wife and kids know it best and, and other people know it too, that I am not yet the man that you created me to be. And I don't yet perfectly reflect your son. Forgive me. 
And yet use me, God, to do your good work. And Father, I pray for these people. Some of them are in very, very broken circumstances. And you are far more aware of all the intricate details uh, than I am. And yet I pray that you would bless them. And Father, I pray that as they do this, hopefully, with us, as we look forward to Christmas, um, that even when people see what a hot mess we are sometimes, um, that in some way they would yet see your goodness through us. Father, that you would one day come and repair the broken screens of our lives, and yet, in the meantime, Lord, use us. And we thank you for being the good and generous God that you are. And so, we praise you. We love you. Now it's time to turn our hearts to worship you.